Hello, relatives. I'm Matika Wilbur. I'm from the Swinomish and Tulalip tribes. I'm a photographer and the founder of Project 562. And I'm also a mom, a wifey, <laughs> a writer, and the co-host of this fantastic podcast. And I'm Dr. Adrienne Keen, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, author of the Native Appropriations blog, scholar, writer, faculty member, auntie, dog mom (laughs) (laughs) and co-host with Matika. We have a beautiful episode for you today. We're thinking through building indigenous futures. Why should native students participate in higher education? As many of the listeners know by now, or maybe not, (laughs) my academic research and work as a scholar is with Native students navigating the college process. I've been doing this work for over a decade, working closely with Indigenous students and a nonprofit called College Horizons. In my journey through my research and writing, there have been several people who have been foundational to my thinking, learning, and shaping of my work. As I am working to finish up my book, which you have heard a lot about. (laughs) Your second book. My second book. Your second book. The second book. Um, I am working through like a lot of these ideas right now. um, And I feel so excited to share the voices of some of the mentors, thought partners, and friends who have really helped me in this process. Mm -hmm. Truly, they're the folks that have most deeply shaped my thinking on the role of college in our communities and our scholars that continue to be national leaders in the field of indigenous higher ed. So a while back, (laughs) we talked to our friends, Dr. Amanda Ticini and Dr. Brian Brayboy about the realities for Native students in college. Amanda is Navajo and the Assistant Professor in Educational Leadership and Innovation at Arizona State University, who centers her research on exploring college access and persistence among Indigenous college students using qualitative Indigenous methodologies. She's also published her beautiful book, Native Presence and Sovereignty in College, Sustaining Indigenous weapons to defeat systemic monsters from Teachers College Press, and you should all buy it. (laughs) We'll link it in the show notes. And Brian is Lumbee and President's Professor in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University, where he is a senior advisor to the President, Director of the Center for Indian Education, and co-editor of the Journal of American Indian Education. We're thrilled to share this conversation with y'all, and we thought it important to think through the experience for Native students in higher education and to really pause and ask ourselves, why should we be encouraging Native students to go on to higher education? There's truly no doubt that colleges and universities in what is currently known as the U.S. are settler colonial universities. Every college in the U.S. is built on and from indigenous land, Mm -hmm. and therefore every college continues to benefit directly from the displacement of indigenous people. Yet Native students make up less than 1% of college students nationally, and this statistic absolutely blows my mind. In the last decade, from 2009 to 2019, indigenous enrollment in college actually dropped 38% from 187,000 students to 116,000 students. Mm. That's 70,000, 70,000 Native students that are not enrolled in college in the last decade. So imagining the impact that each of those students could have made in their family and their community is really hard to fathom. Mm -hmm. And this is all amidst a push for symbolic change, like land acknowledgments on college campuses. (laughs) But where is the support for the students from these lands? So... Clearly, Mm -hmm. historically white colleges are not serving Native students well, and despite the hardship, communities still see it as this meaningful and important goal. So the question in my book, the question in this conversation is why? Why is college something that we push for Native students, and how do we prepare them for before, during, and after? Mm -hmm. And then how can colleges help us build Indigenous futures? Sorry. All my relations. So now we're going to take you back, way back, pre-pandemic. Matika was pregnant. We were all hanging out in this big house in Arizona recording the podcast. And that was when we had our conversation with Dr. Ticini and Dr. Brayboy. We're going to start with a discussion around what is the experience like for our Native students in higher education. And we kind of just want to delve in. When you think about the experience for Native students, what comes to mind first? 
Yeah, so for for me, I think it's it's a little bit depressing that it continues to be true that that for me it's often the story of invisibility. Speaking now is Dr. Brayboy. And absence. And so what does that mean for us that there are so few Native students in, in higher ed? I mean, I think there's a historical point of view to that in terms of how we got there, how we continue to remain here in terms of the present. For, for me, that opens up all kinds of possibilities about the future. So I, I am often interested in asking questions about what's possible. Well, how might we, we make these larger questions of invisibility and complicate that a bit so that there's a presence of Native peoples in universities. I know with the students that I work with through College Horizons, a lot of their experiences once they get to college campuses are definitely the invisibility. A lot of the of that goes not just from not seeing other Native folks, but the representations on syllabi or their faculty in front of the classroom. There just aren't representations of Native peoples on their campuses. Mm-hmm. And for me, I have a daughter who's a senior in high school, and I was a former teacher. So I worked around a lot of Native high school students on their journeys in the college. Speaking now is Dr. Ticini. And the perspective I could draw upon and build upon your thinking is they come in with so much excitement and also a sense of anxiety of what that's going to be like. But they really value wanting to get a college education because they know it's going to help their family get out of the struggle They know that it's an opportunity for them to do something for themselves. They know that there's hope and the sense of college as a community good and value. And so they're walking into these college campuses geared up, ready with their school supplies and like ready, I feel in some extent, to conquer the world because Mm -hmm. they're trying something on their own. And I feel like, though, that as they're walking and as they are continuing on, there's faced with these challenges, what I call as monsters, as of invisibility, So I'm hoping that with our work at this table and many people across the world who are advocating for Indigenous higher ed is trying to shed the light on, yes, our students are invisible, but what is really invisible is whiteness and normalization that makes the students feel like they are invisible, right? Mm -hmm. So so I'm hopeful in the sense that, but we have so much strength in the ways that we were raised with our family and what we have to offer and that call upon those to defeat these monsters that are there to work through that. You know, I've been doing so much public speaking, especially in universities, mm-hmm. but the the story seems to resemble the same story, whether I'm at Harvard or Yale or at a community college, you know, in, in Western Washington. It's the story that says, I don't feel like I belong here. I don't know what I'm doing here. And I don't feel like I have a place to go back to when I go, when it's time for me to go home. And right now, they, in university, do not see themselves reflected. Mm -hmm. They don't see themselves. Nobody looks like them. The professors don't look like them. They don't, nobody sounds like them. Nobody gets their jokes when they get there. (laughs) And there's nothing to take care of their spirit also. And so in some ways, I feel very conflicted about whether or not I should encourage my nieces and my nephews to go to university, because I know that what I'm setting them up for is a potentially very dangerous situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that with my book manuscript that I'm working on, I kind of have this central question of why college for Indigenous students. And The three of us as researchers are very focused on not having deficit perspectives, but we know from the research that Native students really struggle in college. And we know also that the source of those struggles is not the students themselves, but we know the statistics of graduation rates are really low. We know the number of students who enroll are really low. And so when we have this knowledge of what the experience is going to be like for a lot of students, why is it that our communities still continue to see college as a source? of power and strength and something that is important for our students. So I think the the big question of why college for Indigenous students is what I kind of hope we can frame our conversation around. I'm convinced that not all Native people should go to college. 
I'm equally convinced that everyone should have the option about whether or not they go. Our schools start sorting kids when they're three, four, and five mm -hmm, years old, mm -hmm. and they put them on a track that says, you're either going to college or you're not, or you're going to have the opportunity. And so for me, the argument is really, let's at least provide our children with a choice so that when they get to year 10 or 11, they can begin to decide whether or not they want to go down that road or not. Uh, and so I think that becomes a really important piece of of this, but but why college? I mean, it's part of an experience that people should be able to choose to engage in or not. We're often left asking these questions, why aren't more native kids doing well in college or why aren't more going? And I think we should be asking the question, why aren't colleges ready to receive our children and to help them belong in really meaningful ways? Because one of those questions says the children and communities are a problem. The other is really, why aren't our institutions and our educational structures ready for, for our students and how do we help them do that work? Yeah. And you know, we'll answer Brian's question a little later in the episode, but first we wanted to dive a little deeper into what these challenges look like for Native students that are actually navigating these institutions. So I reached out to my nephew, Dominic Joseph. He's from the Tulalip Tribes. He's pursuing a master's degree in communication at the University of Washington. Hi, nephew. How's it going? Glad to be here. Dominic, you know, we want to talk a little bit about your experience in higher education as a native person, you've, uh, you know, you've done all the things you did community college, then later you went to a state school, you know, you went to um, Wazoo. Yeah, Wazoo is the uh, Washington State University. Let's go back to like your first year of being, you know, at Wazoo, you're learning how to navigate the university system. Would you say that you felt like seen on campus? Or did you feel like you were in an environment that supported Native students or that there were systems in place to support you? So I'll, I'll just walk you through the orientation when we first did the orientation as, as students. So they basically bring you all around and they say, this is how great our school is and the things you could do as students. You know, there's fraternities, there's gyms, there's clubs and all those type of things. And then there was where they start talking student clubs, where everyone's kind of like, okay, I could kind of see myself where I could fit in. And there's this big, big building that has like all the student orgs. There's like Asian Pacific Islanders, African-American caucus group, the Latinx, LGBTQ, uh, Women's Center. And then they didn't talk about native students or native programs. And, and orientation. Yeah, and also mind you, the Native American Student Center is on the other side of campus in like a basement. <laughs> as an initial first step on the campus and the orientation, they were kind of like, yeah, they're over there. And that was kind of like, oh, as a Native student, how are you supposed to feel? have conversation outside of FAFSA, outside mm -hmm. of college admissions and enrollment and all of those. Those are really important questions mm -hmm. to talk about, but we need to equip them about dealing with racism, mm -hmm. about dealing with feeling like their sense of belonging, their essence of their self is going to be potentially lost and they're going to question themselves. Mm -hmm. Those are the types I feel like college workshops Mm -hmm. that we need to instill with our young people to say that this is going to happen because that's life. And this is ways that you can equip yourself to prepare. Mm -hmm. It's talking about these real life experiences that's going to happen to them. And if our students are facing these types of challenges, why are we encouraging them to go to college? For me, I think when I talk to young people and even my own children about why college, I ground them in history Meaning like I think about the Nick College was one of the first tribal colleges for our people. And I think about that generation, about how those people at that time were advocating for the need to have education in their terms. And then I think back even decades prior to that, when our Navajo people were being forced to go to boarding schools. And so all of the history is really hard when you hear about it. But what I think about is how those ancestors, our generations back, wanted us to live and survive 
and how education provides that. And they also have advocated for that. I'm a descendant of Chief Manuelito, who was one of the treaty signers of the Treaty of 1868 for Diné, for our people. And he, one of the words that he always expressed is, go my children, go and get education. And so he, at that time, can you imagine during an era when they were trying to fight for their people and all our people were at Heldwe, which is the place uh, that they were in prison camps, were being stripped away 300 miles from Dinepekeya, our land, and how they were negotiating, what do we do? Because our people would have gone to Oklahoma if, it, if that, that treaty wasn't signed. That was the plan of the federal government was to take us to Oklahoma away from our land. And our relatives, our ancestors were talking about, no, we have to stay connected to where we're from, to our place. And part of that treaty was negotiating education. Education was then is stipulated in the Treaty of 1868 that there be education, a schoolhouse, and that a teacher would be provided for, I want to say, 15 or 20 children. I don't remember the number. But I think about them in terms of what they advocated for during a time of such injustice, Mm-hmm. such horrible injustice so when I tell my babies now like you're going to college yeah it's going to suck because there's going to be some really tough times but our ancestors were able to survive and we need you baby in there because mm-hmm. the more we can have our brown people and our native people in there the more representation the more numbers we can get in the stronger our voice is when we're united and mm-hmm. we need that and so that's my message is to think about the history and what our ancestors did for us to emphasize that, yes, they had hardships, but we come from that lineage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love, I love when, when people bring in that conversation around the ancestors and what we went through and to be able to remain educated. And for me, my answer to this question is always that we, we always had systems of knowledge and systems mm-hmm. of education. And we had a way in our long in our longhouse systems of teaching our children of having coming of age ceremonies and of continuing that growth and development through all every stage of in every season of our life. And so it would make sense that you know as soon as we had contact and were negotiating treaties, we wanted to maintain that right. And so for me, when I think about you know access to higher education and whether or not all of our students should go on and continue learning, albeit in a Western model, which is, you know, this very, you know, like this four-year institution or 12-year institution, however they decide to go, <laughs> they'll they'll do that either way. You know, if they decide to stay home and continue in my community to become fishermen or canoe builders or whatever they decide to do, that, that learning continues either way, but, but, but they should have the choice. The framework for this episode, Dominic, we we say like we're building indigenous futures and we ask the question, should we be telling our native students to go into higher education? Are we setting our students up for success or are we sending them into the wolves den? You know? uh, so when you reflect on that concept, how would you encourage uh, the next generation when it comes to higher education? I've had some high school, I've actually spoken to some middle schoolers and high schoolers about what they want to do and what should I do and should I go to college is a, a probably the number one thing I hear. And I always ask them is like, well, what do you want to do right now? You know, don't think about four years from now. Don't think about what makes the most money either. That's another thing I like to say, because a lot of people are like, oh, I heard engineering makes the most money. I'm just going to go do that for college and then come back and then buy a nice house on the res and then whatever. And I would say, well, so what do you want to do? And I've heard people say, well, I want to learn how to do similar to what you're doing in communication. I'm like, well, come try it out. Take a class. If you don't like it, you could always go back. I always heard that a lot. Almost a little too much where I felt like it was a little persuasive. Like, hey, (laughs) if you don't like it, come back. You know, you get a C, come back. You know, (laughs) but um, I don't think higher education is the only place for natives to learn. I think it's one of many places to learn. I think there's technical colleges. I think there's peop- there's some people I know who have never picked up a book, a college textbook, and the- I listen to what they're saying, you know? Like, there's people who learn in many different ways, and I think 
college has some definite options, like for specific things like agriculture, or if you want to learn to be a farmer, there's some things that you can learn in college classes. But there's also farmers you could go learn from and be on their farm for five years and learn the same experience. I think there's many options for Native students, and I don't think they should ever put themselves in a hole if they do not decide to go to college and learn a different way or get another job a different way. Because I've had a lot of people who have had judgment towards themselves when comparing their stories to mine. And I've always said, hey, look, man, I'm not, I look at you eye to eye. I don't look at you like I'm better than anyone just because I chose to go. It's basically choosing to go do something else. That's all it really is. And there's no higher up um, in, uh, in learning. So if a high school student is listening to this, don't you know, feel too much pressure if you don't decide to go to college. But if you do, don't feel discouraged because there's no other native students. Because if that's what you want to do, then at the end of the day, that's what you should want to do. Welcome back from the break, friends. Thanks for being here with us. We're still here with Dr. Ducini and Dr. Brayboy. So we were talking a little bit about nation building through education and thinking about the ways that our our sovereign tribal nations can benefit from systems of higher education. And I feel like we have been talking a lot about how challenging and hard college can be for Native students, but it also can be really fulfilling and joyful and be an incredible opportunity. So Amanda, what are your kind of thoughts on that side of things? Like what can a college experience be like that brings that more strong, positive perspective? I think many of our students who do come into college, they have the sense of purpose instilled in them that's embedded in their teaching. It's inherent of this idea of taking care of others, even often taking care of your others more than yourself sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And I think we're, we're taught this at a young age. I can remember just being a toddler and maybe three or four and already taught to take care of my grandma and grandpa. I already taught, get their food first, they sit first. Like these, these teachings are instilled in us that they need to sit down before you, you know, all these things that we just taught and so it's part of what makes us feel good. And it's and I think I think as people, as I know with Dene, that's one of our goals in life is to feel good, to have hojon, to have balance, to have a goodness, a good life, a good heart. And by doing that then is by taking care of others helps in that way. So for students then, for them, although they're dealing with a lot of challenges on colleges, at the end of the day, many of them are thinking that they're going this because they want to go back and to help their grandparents. And then for them, they're thinking about all these ways that they can give back while they're in college. Because I think we often think that you have to give back when you're done. Mm -hmm. But there's so many transformative ways that you're in the giving when you are entering. By just being a representative, by just being there, you're demonstrating that sense of they're you're already they're already role models for these young people. And that's also in research. When I talk to young people about when they first started going to college, they tell stories of I wanted to go to college when I went to my cousin's graduation. And I saw her and I asked my mom, what is this? And they talked to me, that's college and it instilled in them. Mm. So they don't even realize that when students are going to college already, they are already transforming a possibility, a possible selves Mm -hmm. is what Dr. Stephanie Freiberg talks about in her research. They're creating representation and that. And so I want to instill, I think what we want to instill into our students, what we do, and I know Brian does a wonderful job is instilling in these students that they're giving back while they're doing this and they're by them being there as part of that. And so I think that that part is really important for us to keep in mind is that that's just, that's really powerful. And college is a lot of fun. (laughs) Really like college is so exciting because you learn so much, you build relationships. You know, this podcast is all my relations. And it's this idea that we are all related to each other, to this place, to creator, to the universe. 
And in college, I feel like with native students, they start understanding that a little bit more. I think and when they're young, when we're young, we learn that whether we go to church or practice ceremony, we know, it's part of the routine. But when you're on your own, you learn to really practice that more. And I feel like you get more, you may potentially start understanding that a little bit more in your connection to creator for the students that I have been able to learn from has strengthened. Mm-hmm. And that is a part of of the college journey that we don't really realize is happening is that the students are building relationships with friends. They're building the relationship with creator too. Mm-hmm. And they're building a relationship of understanding their connection to their people on their land. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the college conversation. We don't talk enough about that's happening though. Yeah. And so I feel like that's powerful when we instill these messages to students about there's so much there. Because when you have that divine connection and those divine relationships, man, life is just beautiful mm-hmm. <laughs> in all things that you can see. Mm-hmm. The evidence is pretty overwhelming for Native students who have been successful in college. Almost all of them want to give back in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because the narrative around college, that's fundamentally it's about go to college so you can do something for yourself. You can have a better life. You can make a bunch of money. Native folks have really, since we've been going to college, it's been about how do I give to others? So there's a, there's a particular form of reciprocity there. It's, it's about taking stuff. And this goes back to Amanda sort of talking about feeding elders first, their grandmas and grandpas first. I take so that I can give to others. I think in lots of ways, that's sort of the, what drives many students and and the students who are successful really are focused on doing for others. The students who are like, I'm just going to make a gazillion dollars tend not to fare as well. It's really, it's been true in my work for a long time, but if you look at it, those students who get out and give to others, and it's the beautiful thing about it is even as they're giving to others, they're getting for themselves. It's just that's not the primary motivation. Mm-hmm. So it's fundamentally the question about what motivates you. Is it about serving others or is it about serving yourself? And those who are motivated by serving others tend to both do really well in that work, but also do really well for themselves. So you can actually do both. It doesn't have to be about you're sacrificing everything. You actually benefit from from that individually at the same time you're benefiting your community. I think we miss that sometimes too. Mm-hmm. When I was young and I said I wanted to go to college, the first thing they ask is, what are you going to do for your tribe? And I think it was a big factor in me choosing what college I wanted to go to. Because at first it was like, okay, what are you going to do for your tribe? Are you going to be able to stay close? Are you going to be able to help your tribe all at the same time? Even like you don't even help have your family. Yep. Be a good be a good son, be a good grandson, be a good nephew. Exactly. They're like, how could you be, how could you do all of those things? And that's almost like they expect you to, some people in your community expect you to be like an octopus. It feels like they want you to have one hand over in higher education, one hand over here doing, helping the elders, helping your the youth. They want you to do this. And that's what it felt like. So that expectation was obviously always in my mind, even when I was doing school. It's like, okay, well, maybe if I get good grades here, um, I could go back and then I could show people how good of grades I got and I could help the community that way. But it's like at the end of the day, those grades aren't necessarily going to help the tribe. It's what I'm going to bring back. And I think getting asked that was a really heavy weight to have on your back. But I also think that weight was a good thing too. Like, you know, when I say heavy weight, people be like, oh no, that's that's terrible. No, it was really motivating. What colonization did to our communities was limit our possibilities. It limited our freedom of movement. It limited our possibilities of imagining those possible selves, of imagining what is possible. And when I think about the narratives that Native students have been given about what giving back means, I think about the limiting of possibilities um, because it's often the 
narrative is that giving back means going back um, physically. It means being something that is directly tied to the benefit of your community, like a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a nurse or something that is like very tangible. And part of what I think the work that we're all trying to do is sort of open up those infinite possibilities and remind our students that our people have always had freedom of movement. Giving students that framework to say that giving back can look like all sorts of things, that there are infinite possibilities and that that in itself is powerful too. For me, I I can specifically remember my great-grandmother saying, um, when you grow up, you're going to go to college so you can come back and help our people. You know, like you have, but don't forget that this is where you belong, you know, and you'll always come back here. But I remember, I re, like, I specifically remember her saying that to me, but then I remember it being said over and over and over again at different doings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I know when I went to university, though, for me, mm-hmm. I could not wait to leave the res. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah, so me excited. Too. Me too. And I chose a school that had no Native people, specifically, you know, because I was just so fed up with the reality of res life. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want any of that to follow me to higher education. And so somewhere along the way, I got this idea that being an Indian was bad. Mm-hmm. And that being an Indian meant that I had to be impoverished. And it meant that I was going to be less than. Mm-hmm. And it meant that I was going to continue to experience racism. And so I fe- and then when I got to university, I would tell people I was Native. They would have, of course, no idea what that means. And so then I would have to explain it. So then I just got to a place where I stopped telling people, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so while I know I was motivated by that, like somewhere inside of me, I also know I was at the same time rebelling against that idea. And so I think it's kind of complex. And I, and I wonder, was your experience that same way? When do you remember the first time somebody instilled that value into you? And did you accept it? Or did you, how long did it take you before you actually started to see it play out in your life? My mom was a teacher. So I was always with her in the classroom. You know, I remember that was when chalkboards were, we all had chalkboards. I remember I would help her clean the chalkboards. And so education was already instilled in me from such a young, young age. And then my grandma, she wasn't a trained, my shamasana, she wasn't a certified nurse, but she would often be called to be the nurse because on the res, the nurses often wouldn't stay. But my grandma knew how to like take care of others through just knowing medicinal practices and just being such a loving person too. So I used to see my grandma on school grounds too. So just this, I think being associated with my strong uh, motherly figures, I knew that education was important. But I was also at all the doings and I would hear like what you said, all the native things and hear that instilled in me like, go and get an education. I would hear my chief, the chief Manilito, who I am descended from, I hear that a lot. And you know, it's on billboards now back at home on the res, that those, those words. But I was like you too. I was feeling like I needed to get out of the res because I was dealing with, there was a lot of struggle that I faced with my family. And I thought I need to get, I need to get away too. I was also struggling with myself about, I think I was, probably thinking very colonized and thinking about how, you know, my, my community is struggling. Why can't they do better? Why can't we all get it together? You know, that kind of thinking. And it wasn't until I started really taking some classes about learning about the system and the structures and the history that I realized that it's not us, but we're made to feel like we are at fault. Mm-hmm. It is not us that there's really historical and still contemporary issues that are happening that makes it hard for there to be any jobs at home. Mm-hmm. Our Navajo community, there's like 60% unemployment. It's, there's, there's only 14 grocery stores in the whole Navajo land, which is the size of West Virginia. I mean, like we're you know, we we're dealing with these real struggles and people often think, oh, why can't you all just get jobs? And like, why can't you just start businesses? Mm. Well, that's 
you, there, it's, it, you can't do that because there's so much federal policies tied to land that mm. people don't understand that it's hard to even start mm. infrastructures. Mm -hmm. To start a business on Navajo land takes years. Mm -hmm. And Flagstaff, Arizona, which is off the Navajo land, you can get a business started in less than a week. And so, so, and, and so that's what I'm talking about more in my research is I want to write about that so our young people will see that not be like me, like the mistake I made where I felt like we're at fault. Mm. because they feel like we are made to feel that way mm -hmm. we're made to feel that that we're the ones at fault we can't get out of the struggle it's our fault we're dumb you know it's easy to fall into that mm -hmm. but once you start learning and piecing out the layers of really there's historical policies that make it hard for us today it's not our fault and mm. that's why we need more people to get educated so that way we can help to address these policies that are hindering our people So at this point in our interviews, we came to a place where we said, okay, we can identify the issues for Native students going into higher education. That is super clear. But we also need to know what does the work look like of trying to change these institutions, of trying to make it better for Native students, of trying to get more Native students into these spaces so there can be community, so there can be support. And there are plenty of programs that are out there that are trying to solve these issues. And of course, the one that I immediately went to and wanted to talk about was College Horizons. And College Horizons is a pre-college access program for Native students that I participated in when I was 16 years old as a high school student and have continued to work with them ever since. And they are the subject of my book. They're, to me, an organization that's really doing innovative and interesting and important, challenging work to make change in higher education. So we decided to talk with Carmen Lopez, the executive director of College Horizons. Could you tell us just a little bit about what College Horizons is and the work that y'all do? We are a college access and pre-graduate program that serves indigenous students from across the United States. So we particularly service uh, Native Americans, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian students. And mm -hmm. what we really do is just help them, high school students and college students, on the application process to apply to college or professional and graduate schools. And, and really what we're trying to do is get more Indigenous students into post-secondary education and through it. And I always talk to my staff and the faculty of the program about being cultural translators, that that's part of our work because we're, we're translating across systems and, and structures and institutions. And because we sit in between those spaces and gaps, that's our role is to help translate to students and parents and grandparents. Here's the process. This is what they're asking of you. And then from the college partner side, we're talking to them about community and why community and culture matter to college. And that's what I've always loved about the model of College Horizons is that it's this full kind of holistic model of looking at what a Native young person needs in that space. And like you were saying, it's not just those mechanics. It's the cultural piece. It's the belonging piece. It's understanding the motivation of why. How do you at College Horizons prepare some of the students that come through your program to be the only Native person in a space or to prepare them emotionally and mentally for what they're about to encounter? Yeah. On the very beginning, we have to start to address that of saying, imagine the space that you're going to be in. What do you need around you to, to feel supportive? And if you need that large Native population, if you need a Native Student Service Center or language, if you're into language, studying language, there's going to be only certain universities that might have that program for you. So we, we have to introduce that at the very beginning before they've even applied to college to get them to start mm -hmm. thinking about that. And then, then in our scholars program, this is the work of trying to send students off to college with prayers and protection. And, and this means like intellectual armor. And that's mm. the introduction of 
this academic language uh, around microaggressions, around being at a predominantly white institution, about institutional racism, structural racism, around uh, critical race theory uh, and tribal crit. So it's it's also um, giving some intellectual armor to to let them have the language to things that they might that they've already experienced growing up but also what they might experience more acutely in college in this little microcosm of America. And I can say that hearing back from many of our scholars or students from our program is that they'll come back and tell us a story to say, I remember when you told us this would happen and and here's exactly what happened on my campus. And sometimes, again, they're at the point where they don't have the power yet, the voice yet to say something, to speak up in that moment. And that's okay. Sometimes we're not ready for it. I needed things modeled to me by other Native students when I was in college. I didn't have the the words yet. I was still dealing with emotions around this. And I really had to look at upper class students to say, how would they respond to this? Watch and listen. And then when it was my turn, finally, when it was like my junior year, that was when I started to stand up myself to say, okay, I can handle this one. I'm going to take this one on. That gets me always to the answer of why higher ed and why I think our students should be in those spaces. And I mean, you've touched on this in your answers, but I would love to hear you just speak directly like two institutions, two universities. What do they need to do better? Like what do we need from universities to better serve Native students and the communities that we come from? You have to build trust with Native communities, with schools, with educators. A college can't just buy that trust from from us or from, from Indian country. You have to work towards it. And so that's why I have frank conversations with new partners coming in to say, you need to be in the long haul with me on this and that you're going to learn a lot. Your institution is going to learn a lot as you grow, as you grow with us. Also teaching cultural humility of our institutions. So it's really important when when we get into conversations around affirmative action. What's really important about understanding affirmative action and what the court ruled was that the institutions were deficient. And at the time, this is when we're integrating racially and, and, and with gender Women are not deficient. African-Americans weren't deficient. Native Americans were not deficient. It was the institutions that were deficient because they were lacking in having us in their institutions. So, So that's the shift of saying it is on the institution to be working on this still. And that's why it's important to track certain demographics and understand who are we enrolling at our institutions because we're still deficient. The institutions are still deficient. So that's the cultural humility side of things that colleges need to come back to saying, instead of what are all the things that we can do for you as a college? It needs to be about saying, what is it students, uh, indigenous students that you want from us? And, and even just the most simple, basic way of sometimes translating this over in action is when colleges and universities come to visit different states, New Mexico, I'll take for example, you might only hit Albuquerque and Santa Fe. And you might be only focusing on the independent schools in the state. But have you done tours of the reservation schools, the Pueblo schools, the Indian schools? Are you making that three-hour, four-hour drive throughout our state to develop those relationships? Or is it that you think that if I hold a college fair in Albuquerque, in Phoenix, all the kids are going to come down to me? So <laughs> so that's the, that's what's not going to work. You 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 have to understand and have your own cultural humility that that doesn't matter sometimes. That's not matching with the core values of getting my grandma to that college fair or or getting my auntie to understand how you're going to mm. take care of my child. At the end of my book, I am putting forward this Cherokee idea of Gadoogie, which is our kind of 
word for giving back. And it's the idea that you are working together towards a common cause that benefits the overall community. And it comes from back in the day when there used to be these groups of community people who would go around and tend the gardens of people who were sick or were elderly or couldn't tend their garden. And the direct translation of Gadugi is putting together the bread. And our bread is made from corn and beans. So two things that you would grow in your garden. So this group of people going around would be the ones to help you put together your bread. And that's the understanding of community uplift and of giving back in Cherokee. And so when I've started to think about the future for our communities and thinking about we're living in this very unstable time and climate change is real and there's insecurity and instability and all sorts of political things, um, what will it look like to put together the bread in the future? both that sort of actual tangible thing of how are we going to sustain and feed our communities? How are we going to make sure that we have access to indigenous foods and things that will sustain us? But then also what will that community uplift look like? What will that community uh, working together towards a common goal that benefits our overall community? What will that look like in the future? And so if we're thinking about our Native students that are about to enter into college that are looking down the barrel of this very uncertain future, what words do you have for them about how they can think about putting together the bread in the future? You know, I I'm, um, spend a lot of time thinking about what kind of world we're leaving to our children. And I always feel a little bit like I owe an apology to them Um for a bit of the mess when you talk about climate change and global warming being a real thing and the Amazon is on fire and our kids are taking their lives more frequently than they should and they they don't see themselves living past 25. So there's a part of me that wants to give them an apology, but there's also, I think, a part of us that have, um, a part of me that realizes that, that we are in some ways have laid out a path for them that doesn't have to go down that road. And so I think the challenge is to help them understand which path or paths to take. I don't know that there's a singular one, but I think that the paths are all guided by similar kinds of things, which is to recognize the importance of relationships between people and place, between people and each other, between people and stories. I encourage young people to find love, lots and lots of love, um, things that they love doing, but also love in in place and love in the people that they're in. And I think the last thing I would I would want to say to young people is make it better for those who come behind you. Mm-hmm. We spend so much time talking about sustainability, and I think I often think about sustainability, and this may be my inadequacy in terms of how I think about it, but I think about sustainability as leaving things the way you found them. And I think about stewardship, which is what I think Native peoples do, as leaving things better than you have it. And I think if we understand that our role, and if young people understand that in spite of what you've been giving, part of your role is to make it better for those who come behind you, the future is pretty darn great. I, I always have this recurring dream, and I talk about this dream all the time, and it's this dream where I'm on public transportation, and I look over, and there's white people, and they're speaking Lashutzi. And they have their baby and baby boards, you know, like we do. And they're feeding their kids dried fish. And they're talking about these very, these very traditional things, but in a very contemporary context. And I look over, and there's Asian people, and they're speaking Lakota. And they're all, oh, I'm a Takuyasa. And I look over, and there's black people. They're speaking Dene. Oh, Hashona Hishli. I, I realize I'm dreaming about a modern world that didn't aim to erase its indigenous intelligence. You know, I'm dreaming about a modern world that instead integrated that. And how powerful might that be if we could have an indigenous Wakanda? And I love that idea for me because it allows me to, to look around myself and, and see myself in the future. And that to me is the most important message that our children can have is that is that they're not going to die by the age of 25, like most of them believe, but rather they're going to live many seasons, you know? And, mm. and so that's the most important message I think that our children can have. 
And so I think we have to, our children deserve the right to think about themselves in all of the seasons of their lives, you know, and that this season of going to higher ed is important and valuable, but it's just one season, you know, (laughs) so to think about it that way. That's how I like to tell tell students, you know, that they're going to live a long life, you know, and and this is going to be the fun part because <laughs> yeah. you're going to have so much energy. <laughs> you're not going to be you tired. Know, youth is just so wasted on the young. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Thank you, relatives, so much for listening. Thank you to Dr. Ticini and Dr. Brayboy for their friendship, their mentorship, their time their research, and all of their work in higher education and in making college a safer place for Native youth. Thank you to Carmen Lopez and College Horizons for the life-changing work you do to make college accessible and a place for nation-building for our communities. Throughout this season, you will hear audio pickups by Kathy Paul, the singer-guitarist extraordinaire from the Swinomish tribes, and the lead in Black Belt Eagle Scout, Thank you, KP, for doing music for us. Special thanks to my nephew, Dominic Joseph. He has his own podcast, Dom Joseph Podcast, available wherever you subscribe. It's hilarious, so check it out. (laughs) And thank you to the whole All My Relations team. Sierra Sana for original episode artwork, Darian Camarillo, Cole Richards, and Jonathan Stein for editing this episode, mastering and scoring by Max Levin. Jamie Marquez Bradshaw for project management, Teo Shantz for all the things, Lindsay Hightower doing social media. Thank you so much to our team for making this all possible. And to you, our listeners, if you love this work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really makes all this work possible. And one last thing, guys, my book, Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America, is now available for pre-order. And pre-ordering makes a huge difference in the life of a book. It tells publishers, hey guys, this is important. Publish Native authors. We need a lot of Native authors. So if you um, think you might consider purchasing my book, pre-ordering it would make a huge difference and I would really appreciate it. We love you. Have a good day. Aho. Uh-huh.